and welcome to Deep Dive, brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. I'm your host, Dr. Sajan Gohel. Each episode, we speak to experts and practitioners in international security and defense, counterterrorism, and geopolitical current events to gain insight into the most pressing matters of global affairs. In this episode, we speak to Muhammad Ali Naqvi, a Pakistani-American filmmaker whose films explore themes of human rights, social justice, politics, identity, and radicalization. Muhammad's documentaries, which include Among the Believers, The Accused, Damned or Devoted, and Inshallah Democracy, have received multiple awards. Muhammad also served as co-executive producer of the Netflix docuseries Turning Point, 9-11 and the War on Terror. Please note, this podcast was recorded just prior to the no-confidence motion against Imran Khan, which led to his removal as the Prime Minister of Pakistan on the 9th of April, 2022. Mohamed Naqvi, thank you for joining us on NATO Deep Dive. Thank you so much. I'm happy to join you. It's a pleasure. You are a documentary filmmaker who has looked at a lot of issues to do with what's gone on inside uh, Pakistan for many years, and your documentaries are primary source information uh, for some of the challenges that have occurred inside the country. One documentary that stood out for me was the one that you did several years ago called Inshallah Democracy, where you spent time with uh, the former military ruler of Pakistan, uh, General Pervez Musharraf. Why did you want to focus on him for this documentary? Um, that had a very long production process. When I first started filming Musharraf, it was in uh, 2010. And, and it was literally a few months after his um, uh, ouster from Pakistan and when he went into self-exile. So, uh, so I went uh, and met him in Dubai. And... Um, I can tell you that I was interested, uh, obviously, in Pakistan's own journey towards um, democracy and, you know, uh, building a burgeoning, um, stronger civil society and government. And I thought that, you know, Musharraf would be such an interesting character to to follow. Um, One, because, well, he was a military dictator. And two, he also played such an important role on the global stage. And um, as luck would have it with, you know, U.S. intervention and foreign policy, um, they had historically backed some of our military dictators in Pakistan. And Musharraf was no exception. And um, I had good access to him. And I thought that this would be a great opportunity to um, get to know him personally and, and get to know um, uh, what uh, what were some of the challenges that he had to face on ground. Um, but what was interesting about this documentary and compared to the other documentaries that I've done is that it's somewhat of a political satire. And it's also a first person documentary in the sense that I'm in this film compared to my other films. And uh, a lot of that had to do with um, me forming a close relationship with Musharraf, becoming friendly with him, and realizing the many flaws that he had 
as a leader. Um, and a lot of the a lot of the, the reasons that I had actually supported him maybe in my youth um, were naive. So it kind of became my own journey of political maturation. And essentially it became a story of me voting for the first time in my life. Um, and I should point out to you, um, that was the narrative of the film. I was basically following Musharraf while he was attempting a political comeback and running for election. Um, back in uh, 2013 and, and post 2013. Um, and uh, so, so yeah, so that, that is basically how that, that concept first started. I was going to say, it was very interesting seeing um, you filming in that. Uh, and as you said, you were in the documentary itself yeah. uh, and you followed him around, uh, not just in the United Arab Emirates, but also when, he, as you said, he was trying to make his uh, political comeback in Pakistan as well. You, you mentioned uh, a lot of the flaws uh, that he had, which is interesting because I also noticed that your own opinion of him began to evolve and change in the documentary. What do you think were his main flaws? Well, he was a military dictator and uh, believe it or not, there is no such thing as a benevolent dictator <laughs> in my opinion. And um my story, why I decided to put myself in the film was, now purely speaking from a filmmaker and a storyteller standpoint, I was changing while I was filming him. And I kind of found that compelling because my own opinion of him was unraveling. I bought the hook, line and sinker narrative of enlightened moderation that he had sold to the world when he first took office and he first joined the war on terror. For me as a Shia minority, security was important because I grew up in the 90s uh, where sectarian violence targeted a lot of people, um, uh, you know, Shias, for example, many people in my community um, in, the, in the early 90s. In fact, one of my uncles was murdered. He was targeted by one of these militant groups. And when Musharraf came on and he was this kind of secular, um, lack of a better word, quote unquote, moderate uh, leader who was pushing enlightened moderation and security, I bought that. I thought that that was great. And, you know, um, I, I, I wanted to, to support him. But as I got to know him personally, once he was out of office, I saw a lot of that was kind of a performance. It was a bit of a facade because even though on a personal level, he might be secular and he might not um, be uh, like hard-lined or supporting like right-wing fanatics, he kind of was supporting uh, those groups, or at least as he said in my documentary, turning a blind eye to them um, and, and using, you know, Taliban factions and militant groups um, as as assets, geostrategic assets in Afghanistan, you know, and he continued to do that. That was for me how, you know, the penny dropped. And um, there's a scene in the film where I'm following him and he goes to Washington, D.C. right after Osama bin Laden has been caught in Aqtabad um, in 2011. And he meets with um, many power brokers in, uh, in the States, you know, various senators and congressmen. 
and he wants to shore up their support for his return to Pakistan in the sense that he, if he's going to run for election in Pakistan, he wants the Americans to kind of tacitly, um, uh, you know, support him, not, uh, and, you know, back his campaign or, or whatever, you know, and to also uh, to clear his name that, you know, he never knew that Osama bin Laden was actually in Pakistan for the last five years, because some of those last five years would mean that it was during his tenure and he wanted to kind of clear his name. And um, I, I was shocked what I was seeing, uh, where he was continuing to uh, basically uh, privilege foreign policy and American uh, people's interests over some of the people in Pakistan, you know, and their interests. And, and, and he was playing this double game of being part of uh, the war on terror and fighting against militancy, but then, but then at the same time, uh, tacitly also supporting these militant groups in Afghanistan, uh, you know, against India. And he didn't realize that the fallout from that was increased militancy within our own borders, within Pakistan. And that was really how my opinion totally changed for him. And like, I lost total faith in, uh, in him as a leader. I remember that scene that you were talking about where he'd gone to the United States and he was meeting people there and basically wanting them to back him to return to power. And I was aghast myself to see somebody who wanted external support uh, to enhance his own position inside uh, Pakistan. So it just shows you that I guess if you can keep following somebody and documenting them, they will provide some, some quite revolutionary uh, aspects of their life, uh, which, uh, which are also quite disturbing at the same time. Uh, one other aspect I, I thought was curious about your documentary was that he seemed very keen to still exhibit a sense of grandeur of, of influence uh, almost like guiding you on occasions to film him looking <laughs> at a photograph or and getting getting you to then ask him about it or or even him reading out Facebook messages. Uh, do you feel that he, he had become conscious that his he was no longer relevant, that at one time this was the most important person in the war on terrorism, and now he was almost uh, a forgotten uh, footnote uh, in, in what had happened to do with Al-Qaeda and the Taliban and, and the whole dynamic of counterterrorism. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, that is when I had come to, uh, uh, to, to begin filming him. And um, I don't know many uh, dictators, but I'd imagine that they're all kind of full of themselves. And Musharraf was no exception. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, um, in many ways, maybe that's why I, I can assume he, he possibly even gave me um, the access and the permission to actually film with him um, uh, this much and with this much access, because I was actually still paying attention to him at a time when the rest of the world wasn't. Um, and uh, so 
So that's that. That's true. I mean, I, I agree with you. Uh, what you're saying. No. And then you had also uh, interviewed him when he was in Pakistan, where effectively he was uh, under house arrest. Uh, his uh, his attempt to rehabilitate his political career ultimately had failed. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you feel that uh, he was naive in thinking that he could go back to Pakistan and that he actually had standing and support? Is it one of those situations where you're almost deluded when you're outside the country or people are maybe telling you you're, you're a hero and you're worshipped and if you come back, you'll be garland and you'll be treated with huge uh, reverence and, and respect. Uh, do you think there was a sense of naivety? Certainly. I mean, I think with Musharraf, he was surrounded by uh, a lot of yes men and people who kind of projected an image of his own uh, grandiosity and, and how, uh, how much he still loved. Having said that, to be fair, there are a lot of diehard Musharraf fans and, and fanatics. Um, I was a big supporter of his and, and I wanted to kind of, that's why I kind of made this film because in a strange way, Musharraf brought about, if I'm being semi-optimistic, um, Pakistan's own uh, journey towards democracy. He kind of uh, solidified that, as in like he hopefully is one of the last dictators. I mean, of course, you can counter-argue and say, well, the establishment and the military establishment is still running the show in Pakistan. They just don't have to do a coup anymore. They can just use a puppet person like Imran Khan. Um, uh, yes, and I would say, yes, there's merit to that argument. But um, with Musharraf, um, the fact that we had our first civilian to civilian transfer of government at that time in 2013, and then of course, subsequently in 2018, that is at least something. It is like small steps, but these are big things because we've never really had that since the inception of our country, right? And I think to traverse this specific period of uh, Pakistan's own uh, journey towards self-rule, it was an interesting uh, uh, person, Musharraf, to guide us through this specific time period in, 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 in Pakistan history. And I was lucky enough to be there and to document it. And um, uh, Musharraf's own journey, uh, which ultimately led to failure, kind of became a secondary arc and story to follow. Because beyond that, the bigger arc was my story. And, and what I mean by my story is me you know, going through my own political maturation process, not falling for um, personality-driven politics or um, running to the military every time that there is an issue or, or like when we feel, uh, you know, threatened by safety and security. That own naivete I transcended in myself. And there are a lot of other people like me who kind of lived in kind of like a, sequestered, uh, privileged bubble. Um, and, and, you know, we all kind of went through that same journey and I wanted to represent that journey. Um, so, yeah. Well, and you did an excellent job in representing that journey. Thank One you. final aspect on Musharraf is what do you think his legacy 
has been in Pakistan that endures, uh, both maybe negatively and positively? That's an interesting question. Well, uh, I, I guess you can say um, one of the biggest legacies, I think, not just in Pakistan, world over, is that he actually was one of the architects of the war on terror. He was part of it. He was very much part of the U.S. coalition on the war on terror, and he made Pakistan, um, well, it wasn't just him. It was, I guess, frankly, in a strange way, he, he kind of failed upwards because he, and that's been kind of the legacy with Musharraf is that he, he, he kind of found himself in these leadership positions where, you know, he, he wasn't supposed to be the guy. He wasn't supposed to be the, the, the army, army gen, the, the chief of army staff, and he wasn't supposed to become president and he wasn't supposed. So, but I mean, he, I guess he, he solidified Pakistan's position uh, in fighting this specific war and made perhaps some of our regional concerns um, more uh, important in the international community uh, where people actually started caring more about, you know, Pakistan's uh, specific interests and place in the world. Whereas I think prior to that, we were mostly ignored, right? So, so I don't know if that's necessarily Musharraf's legacy. It just happened to be uh, just the geo forces and politics that were happening in the world post 9-11. But he happened to be at the helm of Pakistan leadership. So he gets attributed, you know, with that. It's worth remembering, as you said, that maybe he wasn't meant to be in that position. Is you, mm-hmm. I guess you have to track back to before 9-11 and right. even before the coup, because mm-hmm. uh, Musharraf was not the most uh, uh, highest ranking general uh, during uh, Nawaz Sharif's uh, second term <laughs> in office. But uh, I believe the story is, is that the reason why Nawaz Sharif promoted Musharraf to chief of army staff was because Musharraf was the only one who didn't lobby for it. Uh, because precisely because he didn't think he was going to get it. Uh, so sometimes I guess fate has an odd way of thrusting people uh, at, at specific times, which uh, are very he unanticipated. Was, yeah, he was the least likely to overthrow Nawaz Sharif in a coup, according to the Sharif brothers. That's why they chose him. <laughs> and he was fourth in line or something. I mean, there was, he wasn't, uh, supposed to, and that's and then and lo and behold, the rest, as you saw, what happened is history. You know, absolutely. Hashtag irony there. Yeah, exactly. Another yeah. one of your documentaries, uh, Mo, which was fascinating. It was riveting, uh, mesmerizing in almost a disturbing way. I would say is the is the accused, damned or devoted, where you spend a lot of time focusing on this group called the Tariki Labak, uh, a group that at that time, maybe people outside Pakistan had not heard of, but is definitely getting global notoriety now. Mm-hmm. Tell me about why you wanted to do this documentary. So um, uh, the BBC Storyville, which is BBC Four's um, uh, feature documentary strand, um, they had approached me uh, to make a documentary on the blasphemy law in Pakistan, just 
kind of very open-ended. And as I'm sure uh, you're aware, it's extremely dangerous for anyone to make anything on the blasphemy law or even criticize it publicly because you could be putting yourself and your family and everyone in danger, right? I mean, we saw what happened to Salman Tassir, governor of Punjab, just for standing up for Asia back like 10 years ago. You know, his own uh, security guard murdered him uh, and then later became a martyr um, by the same group, Tariqi Lakbek, Pakistan. So when they first approached me, I declined. Um, I just thought it was too much of a um, dangerous project to take on. And then um, it was the fall of uh, 2017, I think it was September or October, I found myself in Islamabad. And this was exactly, it coincided at the same time when the Tariq Lagbek Pakistan um, uh, essentially shut all of Islamabad down. Uh, led by their leader, Khadim Hussain Rizvi, who is one of the main subjects in my documentary, and the leader of the, the Tariqe Lakbaik party. Um, him and his followers uh, descended upon Islamabad because uh, there was this um, oath-taking uh, provision that was being amended and was recommended by the, 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 the law minister at that time in parliament that they wanted to bring some changes to the language um, in, in taking an oath. The inference that Tariq Lagbak got from that was that it, it kind of was diminishing the, the glory of Prophet Muhammad and was hence blasphemous. And what they wanted was for parliament to retract this amendment and basically have the law minister resigned and have him be handed over to the Tariq Lakbek party. And even though parliament had passed this resolution, they shut down all of parliament, they shut down the city. And for three days, everything was in standstill. I remember because I was supposed to fly back to Karachi, but instead I was stuck in Islamabad because airports, everything was closed. And then on the third day, the army got together and basically appeased um, Tariq Lagbek and all of his followers. And they even gave them a thousand rupees each, all the people who were uh, protesting and, and forcing the parliament to close down. And that enraged me because, I mean, I'd seen many times Pakistan, my country, fall prey to the political ambitions of despots. And here we had another one, and he was using Islam as a veneer. And I wanted to expose Rizvi for this. Uh, and I didn't want our country to continue to cower or kowtow to these kinds of people. And uh, I mean, you know, here was a cleric who did not speak for me. He didn't speak for other Muslims. Uh, and he only spoke for his own political ambitions and that, that this is what it was. And so I decided to take on the project um, and I decided to make him my focus because that way uh, it would also kind of provide a, um, a cover for, uh, you know, embarking on this project and, uh, you know, considering how dangerous it was to do this project, um, it would be you know, 
it wouldn't be a victim-driven project. I mean, of course, we feature people and victims in this in this film too, but we wanted to feature more the perpetrator because we didn't want to put any of our victims or anyone, any of those people in, in danger. Um, we wanted to hear straight from the horse's mouth and give him a fair chance and see what his thoughts are and see how he defends the blasphemy law and why he's so popular, you know, just to kind of, explore that you spoke about the danger of this and i wanted to ask you more about it because are you not concerned about your own safety and security uh, based on just how fundamental the tlp are and how uh, motivated their cadres are on the streets uh certainly i mean one good thing is that all the subjects that were featured in my documentary, um, uh, for example, Asia Bibi or, or, or Gulala Ismail, the activist, uh, um, the human rights activist fighting against the blasphemy law, they're all abroad. So um, I, I feel good about that, uh, at least, you know, um, that they're not in danger. And then I also had my crew, my two specific producers who worked with me, um, uh, Musharraf Shah and Mohsen Abbas, both of whom were instrumental in gaining the access to Rizvi and filming with him. Uh, they're also abroad. Uh, I go back and forth, uh, and I mostly am abroad. And in a way, um, although I've screened the accused uh, around Pakistan, but you know, in very ad hoc and private uh, settings, not publicly, <laughs> um, it's still a film that is mostly shown abroad. So, and and so I don't necessarily think um, that it would be safe for us to actually show the film publicly here in Pakistan, precisely because of the the repercussions that could happen. However, having said that, one of the biggest uh, things that we had uh, was that we we attempted to be brutally neutral in our in our in our projection of Rizvi and this issue. We were upfront with him in the sense that we told him we'd be filming with you and that we would also be filming with some of the people who've been accused of blasphemy. And both of you would get the shot, a chance to share your testimony to a global audience, you know? And what people decide is up to them, but we're not going to falsify anything you say. We're just going to show you as is and, and show you the story as is. Um, so, so, you know, so we did do that. Uh, and um, so far, so good. Um, I mean, just to kind of reference with you, I did another film called Among the Believers, in which uh, we also followed a cleric, Molana Abdulaziz, who was the head cleric of this uh, mosque in Islamabad, the militant mosque called Lal Masjid or the Red Mosque. And when that film came out, there was an immediate uh, reaction from his camp because um, they hadn't seen the film, but they were responding to all the social media coverage that the film was getting in Western film festivals like at Tribeca and in Amsterdam and wherever the film was being launched. And they specifically said that, um, that, the, that uh, this director lied to us and he's made a film, um, uh, you know, insulting Islam and, uh, and, uh, and basically he's a kafir and, and 
it was all made up. It wasn't, it wasn't true at all. They hadn't even seen the film. So they were just having knee-jerk reactions to what the press was. I had to stop the film from distribution for a bit. I had to go back to Pakistan and I had to show the cleric the film. And I sat next to him. He watched the whole film and I recorded him seeing the film. And I had him issue a statement in which he said, the, I don't find anything wrong in this film. You've just shown um, basically my point of view. And then you've also shown people from the other side, their point of view about um, how Pakistan should be run and uh, you know whether um, there should be a more specific form of Sharia or Islamic law uh, brought about. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's no issue. I mean, you didn't falsify anything that I had to say and this film is not against Islam. And uh, I took that, um, I took that, um, that soundbite from him, made a short video and released it onto the internet, onto YouTube, Facebook, all those places. And then, um, oh, I should specify, the reason I had to stop from distribution is because we started getting a lot of threats. I got a lot of specific threats of like, you know, um, well, death threats specifically through social media where they wanted me dead and that I should watch my back. And uh, so I, I needed to, um, you know, handle the situation right away. And that's how we did it. And then the threats dissipated once that, um, that, that video went up through social media. Um, well, it's very frightening I, what you're yeah. conveying. And also my film was banned at that time in Pakistan. So I had had some experience like this before filming with the leaders of militant groups. I mean, something that, I mean, I've been making documentaries for the last 18 years, but if you look at the last 12 years, I've been very specific to follow the people in, in power um, who are sometimes the oppressors. And the reason I do that is I don't do it because I'm trying to platform uh, these people who I obviously disagree with. I'm literally showing them as is, and they're using all this rope to hang themselves, if you will, obviously, right? But more so than that, because I work for a uh, global audience and a lot of the documentary audience is international and Western, I feel weird about going after some of the victims and featuring their stories. Of course, I feature them in my film too. But what I don't want to do is poverty porn. And what I don't want to do is just from an ethical standpoint, um, get people who are already um, you know, victims and to whom I have a lot more privilege and much more power to get them, and even though I have their consent, to get them to um, share their story and to kind of, for me to use their story and to, I just don't feel right about it. Like I find that that, that exercise kind of exploitative. And it's a good thing that, that these kind of movements and nonfiction filmmaking, just from an overall standpoint, that, that that's happening and things are changing. So for me, filming with the leader of the Taliban or a former dictator like Musharraf or the head of TLP party, I feel a lot more comfortable filming with them, not because it's not dangerous, it's dangerous, but I feel comfortable from an ethical standpoint because they're a lot more powerful and privileged than me. I mean, they can have me killed <laughs> if they want, you know? 
And there's not much of a pushback that I can do against that. So I feel um, uh, more uh, open to sharing their story. And beyond that, obviously sharing it with uh, Pakistanis in the, in the diaspora. And then, you know, Pakistanis are able to see it here to show the truth of people like Rizvi, how hypocritical they are and how a lot of their piety and everything that they is, is very much a performance. It's not about Islam. It's not about religion. It's about um, their own ambition for political power. And that's what it was. They were literally using the blasphemy law as a platform for their electoral campaign. Their, their song for their, you know, their, their anthem for their political party was vote for us to earn your place in heaven. I mean, come on, you know, I went off on a tangent there, but yes. No, but you brought in some exceptionally important dynamics uh, about your process the filmmaking, the risks and the challenges that you face. And it sort of tracks back actually to the dynamic of the TLP that we're talking about. Now, since your documentary was made on them, uh, Rizvi has passed away. His Mm -hmm. son has taken over. The TLP has gone through some very odd uh, machinations in the sense that they ended up becoming a prescribed group and then it seemed that the uh, prescribed tag was then removed uh, by the uh, Imran Khan government. It almost seems to be coming across like they are able to hold the government to ransom because you're looking at the TLP having not just staged protests, but they've committed very violent acts uh, against the Pakistani security forces. They've murdered police officers. Mm-hmm. There was this very disturbing incident in December of 2021 uh, when uh, TLP uh, supporters lynched the Sri Lanka national uh, Priyanta Mm -hmm. Kumara in Sialkot. Uh, Mm -hmm. And if that wasn't bad enough, uh, his body was set alight and you had TLP people taking selfies uh, with the burning body. Now, Mm -hmm. how dangerous has this group become to the extent that they can actually influence and shape policies in Pakistan. And where does Imran Khan stand on this group? Uh, Is he needing them because he needs uh, support to keep his government afloat? Or or is this ideological? Uh, If if you could perhaps explain this, because it's just so uh, disturbing what is happening with the TLP right now. Well, when it comes to the blasphemy law specifically, and if I were to even reference the 2018 elections, um, a lot of the TLP supporters Imran Khan uh, used to buttress his own political banks. And then when uh, Asya Bibi was set free, uh, he really had no choice but to actually get them arrested and thrown in jail and all of that. Keep in mind, of course, this was once when the Khadim Hussain Rizvi and the, some of the senior leadership of the TLP started calling out the military and started challenging them. And then you saw, you know, um, who really was in charge, and then they were all put in jail. And then, of course, they were set free again. And I mean, and 
how strong is the TLP? Well, it's telling that a brand new political party, when it ran for elections, um, garnered up to 2.2 million votes, third largest in Punjab. And that's extraordinary for a political party that was, I think, registered in 2017 or something, and it ran for election in 2018. And now, and it was 4% of the vote nationally. And now, from what I understand, the, the vote back is even larger, and they actually have some candidates here in, 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 in uh, Karachi and in Sindh and other places. Um, the thing about the TLP party is that even the people who were taking selfies with um, this abhorrent act that took place um, with um, with Priyanka Kumara was, it's not just TLP party. I mean, they actually have a lot of support that goes beyond just politics. It's purely from a, a strange uh, ideological affinity. Um, uh, which, by the way, if you want to get into the history of um, the blasphemy law and how it was, uh, you know, it was it was left over from the British government, and then how during Zia's years, the Zia al Haq years in the eighties and uh, nineteen eighty nine, how in the mid nineties, the the rule was amended to eventually include the death penalty. Um, if you were to actually go into the whole history of that. And I'm not a religious theologian, or, or but there are people who would argue um, in its implementation, the way it's been interpreted, the way it's been used. Um, religious scholars would, uh, which is which is a whole other story. But um, uh, yes, it's frightening. Uh, how much influence the Tariq Lagbak has? It seems to be growing. Uh, are, are they, can they be stopped? Well, I've seen historically when the military decides or the establishment decides to push back on groups, they can, they can certainly shut it down. Um, does the establishment back TLP? I, I don't know. I mean, I think your guess would be as good as anyone else's. I think sometimes in Pakistan, the military establishment and the powers that be aren't a monolith in themselves. I think they're so themselves, so um, uh, of, uh, of a myriad of different views and there's like different factions within different factions within the deep state. Um, but it seems to be, I'm just, and again, this is just based on my observation. The fact that this group still exists and hasn't been extinguished is maybe there is some uh, political asset that can be ascertained by, by our establishment for keeping them around, for keeping maybe the Nawaz brothers or the PMLN in check, or maybe keeping PTI in check. So who knows, you know? Um, uh, uh, so, yeah. Well, that's, uh, I think, a disturbing account of what is taking place and again i guess history is repeating itself where these extremist groups are seen as strategic tools to serve a political purpose and it's not always possible to control them in the way some people may think is possible they are like frankenstein's monster they they will rebel uh, and they and have, and they do and, and they do and they do, and we've seen that over and over. Whether they were using, you know, 
the Obandi groups uh, back in the day, uh, or whether it's like uh, Bariyavi uh, back groups. So yeah, I mean, yes, I agree. So in the final part of this, it'd be good to get your personal take on your experience in Afghanistan, because my understanding is that you were one of the last people out uh, from Bagram just before or during the process of the Taliban uh, takeover. What abiding memories did you take with you? What did you feel? What uh, concerned you? Uh, and what continues to concern you? So um, when I was brought on to uh, co-executive produce the uh, turning point, uh, 9-11 and the war on terror, which was Netflix um, anthology series, uh, looking back the last 20 years, um, you know, 9-11 and post 9-11, what have we learned? How have we changed? Um, uh, I had a very, very specific goal. I mean, it was great to be working with the rest of the team. I should mention Brian Napperberger, who is the director of the series, and Eve Marson, who was, and Lowell Bergman, who are also executive producers on the series. Um, I was the only, um, you can say, uh, uh, well, Muslim and someone from this part of the world in the, um, in the above the line credits from the producer and the directors on the series. And my big push was to show that despite spending trillions of dollars, there have been massive failures. And the other really big thing that I wanted to do was to dismantle the post 9-11 rhetoric that has existed that still kind of permeates some of the stories and narratives that sur surround 9-11, specifically where, uh, you know, Muslims are the evil force. And I, I had the opportunity to film in Qatar because that was, uh, it was the series of talks that were taking place, um, negotiating the U.S. Uh, pullout. Uh, with the Taliban and the Afghan national government. And we also got to film in Afghanistan and Pakistan, for that matter. And it was important to show and share these stories because I wanted to transcend that binary of good versus evil. And I wanted to show that, you know, even the Taliban, uh, and we spoke to, for example, Anas Haqqani, who's Surajuddin Haqqani's uh, uh, brother. And we also filmed with uh, Sohail Shaheen, uh, and then we also filmed with some of the other Afghan warlords like Ismail Khan, Gulbadin Hikmatyar, um, some of whom were part of, uh, you know, the original Mujahideen. So the story of 9-11, and I think that was what was really important for us to put in this series, was that it begins way before 9-11. It begins, you know, with U.S.'s own uh, Cold War uh, strategy of backing um, these Mujahideen groups, empowering them, and sending them to go do jihad against the Soviets. And then once that's all done and it's accomplished, they leave. And of course, as we know, then follows um, a lot of civil war era until the Taliban come and, you know, uh, historical forces that be, but I should point out that our team, 
Um, and I would be remiss not to mention one of my uh, producers on ground in Afghanistan, Sultan Faizi, um, and, and just an, another assortment of amazing Afghan uh, team that we had. We filmed uh, with um, the NATO forces as they were withdrawing. We were one of the last documentary teams. Um, uh, this was in uh, this summer of uh, 2021. Uh, literally a few months before Kabul fell, we were filming in Bagram. And I knew then, and so did everyone else, how sideways this was all going to go and how bad uh, things were going to happen. I just didn't expect to that it would fall literally in the, the speed that it did. That was kind of terrifying and, and sad. But, uh, you know, there you have it. And it was so sad because, you know, a lot of the people that I met on ground and the people that we were working with, they were the first Afghan uh, nationals who, at least in contemporary times, you know, there was a burgeoning civil society. They were some of the most brilliant, uh, you know, uh, female journalists and producers that we'd also worked with and they had worked with us. And... And now all of a sudden, overnight, they were in danger and they didn't have any jobs. They were all fired and uh, they had to find ways to escape the country to save their lives. It was really, really harrowing. In fact, um, the last few months we've been spending just trying to get a lot of our crew out of Afghanistan, which, knock on wood, we've been able to do. Um, so, yeah. Well, it's... A testament to you and how focused you are on covering the ground truth as to what's taking place uh, in Afghanistan and the tragedy that has befallen these poor people who are now at the mercy of uh, the Taliban and the Haqqanis whom you, you mentioned. Um, unfortunately, uh, we don't uh, have more time, Mo, but I wish we could talk to you for many more hours because it's been riveting. Uh, to to talk to you. It, I feel like I've, I'm actually in one of your documentaries uh, because you have provided a real tour de force as to what you do, how you do it, and why you do it, and the importance of it. And I'm very grateful for you spending the time to talk to us. And most importantly, please stay safe uh, and uh, make sure you are protected yourself because you're covering a lot of important angles uh, and uh, taking a lot of risks in the process. Thank you. That's that's really kind of you to say. And um, you know, inshallah, everything's fine. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, um, yes, so far so good. Uh, but uh, yes, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed myself here. Thanks. No, it's a pleasure, and, and we look forward to having you again in the future. Yes, me too. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Dive. I'm your host, Dr. Sajan Gohel. Deep Dive is brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. The production and research team are Marcus Andreopoulos and Victoria Jones. For additional content, including full transcripts of each episode, please visit deepportal.hq.nato.int forward slash deep dive. Please note that the views, information, or opinions expressed in the Deep Dive series are solely those of the individuals involved 
and do not necessarily represent those of NATO or DEEP.